Welcome to Booked, the podcast where two guys tell you a little about the books that they're reading. I'm Livia Snedden. And I'm Rob Olson. Uh, this episode, we're going to be reviewing the book In the Garden of Beasts, Love, Terror, and an American Family in Hitler's Berlin by Eric Larson. A uh, little bit about Eric Larson. He is the author of the books Devil in the White City, Thunderstruck, Isaac's Storm, Lethal Passage, and Naked Consumer. He's also got a lot of other nonfiction writing and collaboration under his belt and teaches nonfiction courses as well. The experience I have with Larson from the past is I read Devil in the White City, which is the book about the World's Fair in Chicago in the 1890s, and H.H. Um, H. Holmes, the serial killer. Very fascinating book. Larson, I believe, writes exclusively nonfiction, but his writing style is more of a narrative and the way that he weaves things together makes it feel less like history and more like um, an actual nonfiction story, which makes the stuff that he writes, I think, a little bit easier to digest. Yeah. Before we get into the story, let me say, and this is just <clears throat> really poor research on my part, but I wasn't aware this was a nonfiction book when I agreed to read it. Um, <laughs> I am... And I think I may have mentioned this in a previous previous podcast. I don't really read nonfiction so little that it's probably about one to two percent of my total reading. Uh, and that includes this book, which was an accident. <laughs> so so let me preface the rest of my review on this book and say right now that remember, anything I say comes from somebody who doesn't like nonfiction writing. That's fair. In the Garden of Beasts tells the story of William Dodd who's assigned to the post of U.S. ambassador to Germany in 1933 during the rise of the Third Reich. He's actually the first American ambassador there after Hitler becomes chancellor of Germany. So the whole story is told from the viewpoint, so to speak, of Dodd and his family. And uh, the book actually kind of starts out with Dodd uh, while he's still in the United States. He's a professor at the University of Chicago in Chicago, and his motivation for looking for an ambassador job is that he uh, wants to write a series of historical books called The Rise and Fall of the Old South and finds that uh, being a professor just takes up too much of his time. So he thought that the ideal situation would be to get a government job that pays him well enough uh, but doesn't demand a lot of his time so he could uh, spend more time focusing on his book series, The Rise and Fall of the Old South. Now that just speaks volumes about being an ambassador to another country, <laughs> I guess. I'm going to quit my job teaching because it takes up way too much of my time. He takes with him to Germany his wife, Martha, who is known as Maddie throughout the, the text of the book. His daughter is also named Martha. And, uh, and his son, Bill, um, with him. But the story really focuses more around um, Dodd's ambassadorship and his trials and turbulations in, in uh, Nazi uh, Berlin. And then uh, the escapade, so to speak, and, and adjustment of Martha to moving to Nazi Germany. <laughs> and the bulk of the book, or the most important and interesting parts, take place between 1933 and 37. 
which is during the time where the Nazis were kind of gaining power and influence. Hitler was chancellor, but uh, had not yet gained total control of the German government. And so it's kind of a, a time where uh, the Nazis are on the rise and there's rumblings about, you know, that this might be a bad thing and that there's bad things happening. But um, for the world at large, it seems like most of the stories and information about violence and persecution and everything were more speculation and rumor. Uh, and it was tougher for people to believe it or really know what was going on. A little bit about the way this book is written. And Rob mentioned this earlier, but um, to the credit of Eric Larson, he manages to write nonfiction and relay it in such a well-written way, you know, as to almost come across as fiction reading, just a flowing story and not a series of facts just thrown at you. And the interesting thing about it, and he mentioned this in his, in his preface to the book, is that anything in quotations in the book comes directly either from a memoir, a diary, a letter, an official correspondence, a newspaper article. So everything, there, there's no... He, he never filled in the blanks or filled in the gaps. Exactly. Yeah. Everything is taken from now. Again, that correspondence, as he mentions in the lengthy author's notes at the end of the at the end of the book, (laughs) obviously can be tainted by the person who wrote it originally. But he does only relay things that were you know, stated or written by one of the participants in the book. Yeah. And that's one of the important points that I wanted to make was that this is obviously a very specific perspective being told mainly through the diaries and journals of Dodd and uh his daughter's book that she eventually published. So what you're seeing while historical um, is one perspective and probably a a very narrow prism of what was going on. And that's the case with any history you read. There's no real such thing as an objective history, but I think going into it, it's important to understand that the perspective is very specific. Well, yeah. And to be fair, the long title love terror and an American family in Hitler's Berlin alludes to the fact that it is an American's look at this and it is right. told from their point of view. So certainly there are other Americans there, but this is probably the cleanest, most documented way he could present this story just mm-hmm. from, and when reading the book, you realize that you know, all those people <laughs> love to write letters and there was a lot of correspondence <laughs> that he was able to draw from memoirs and diaries and such. So it, it probably does give a very, very fair representation of what an average person, you know, living in Berlin would have seen. Yeah, that's true. Maybe the average person wouldn't have had the access and the interactions that uh, that the Dodd family did with uh, high-level government people and stuff. But, yeah, you're right. And, and yes, I, I guess I should correct myself. I meant average is it's just a <laughs> – well, he was a university professor. He wasn't a politician, which is something that comes up very, very frequently um, throughout the book is how he sticks out like a sore thumb amongst all the other ambassadors and, and people in those posts because they were all very wealthy or came from very influential families. And, you know, he was raised on a farm and – um, you know, obviously, uh, a university professor is a, an esteemed job, but he he wasn't independently wealthy and didn't come from from vast amounts of money. And that's what I meant by average person is you know he's your average you know maybe upper middle class um, right. guy you know who gets thrust into Berlin at the at the rise of the Third Reich. Yeah, and they never really say to it, but it's very heavily alluded to that your typical ambassador is someone who comes from money, comes from an Ivy league school, um, is very entitled and rich and everything like that. But, um, yeah, he doesn't fit the mold. And I, and my impression was just that nobody wanted the job of being the ambassador to Germany during the rise of the third Reich. And so, uh, Roosevelt just kind of threw whoever he could find in there. Yeah. And he found a, he found a guy who just wanted to write his book and didn't really care about being ambassador <laughs> of Germany. Apparently it was the a other situation. The, the other main character, 
um, in the book is uh, his daughter, Martha, um, who is, <clears throat> um, she's a journalist as well, who, <laughs> I don't know how else to say this, she has sexual relations with many, many people <laughs> throughout the course of this book. It, it's funny because I know, you know, it's, I take notes. I know as Rob takes notes, it's not exactly how it comes across on this podcast, but some <laughs> of the words used to describe her in our notes are, are probably are, are probably pretty funny. But she does have a series a series of affairs, um, a couple of marriages throughout the course of this book. And being that most of it is taken from her father's correspondence and her own, it's not quite classified like somebody else would looking looking at it from the outside. But yeah, you definitely get the impression that she's a, a woman of few uh, a few morals. Yeah, even for like right from the get-go, uh, she's definitely painted as someone who I'm trying to think of the best way to describe it is someone who is just really enchanted by power and prestige and by and, men and yeah <laughs> and men in general. But she just gets caught up in all of the opulence and money and and prestige and stuff like that, and really dives in head first without thinking at all really about the heavier. Um, political and moral issues and stuff of what was going on at the time. And some of the very interesting things in this book were, and I'm not, I'm not a big history buff. So some of this is very, very new to me. And obviously I'm familiar with Hitler and the third Reich and world war two um, to some extent, but it was just really interesting to see how little the American government, you know, through official correspondence really cared about what was going on uh, as far as the Jews in, in Germany and how it seemed like the main concern was they just wanted Dodd to get, the money back that Germans owed Americans. Yeah. It's yeah. The political motivations were really, really interesting to see. It was very clear. Yeah. Dodd was, you know, basically told several times, Hey, leave the Jewish problem alone and, and work on getting us our money. Yeah. Get our money and, you know, kind of be an example of what government should be like, <laughs> which, yeah, which Dodd takes in a total, other direction very obviously doesn't fit in with any of the politicians, German, you know, Russian, American or otherwise. Um, although he does uh, cultivate some friends and there are some things that are in the author's notes later, you know, quotes from from other people that, you know, really allude to the fact that he was well respected, especially after the fact. But from a government standpoint, um, he, I think he'd kind of become a thorn in their side. Yeah, he didn't really fit in that well. An interesting sure thing about the book is it's not a it's not a short book but it's kind of deceiving and what i mean by that is i think it's it comes in at what 470 something pages i believe so and fully one third of that well maybe not one third but uh, around 30 percent of that is the author's notes about his sources and stuff like that so the actual story itself is far shorter than it appears to be and it takes place during a very specific time frame where a lot of the, I don't know, what's the best way to say it, Livius? A lot of the really overtly evil stuff? Yeah, it, it's, it takes place during the, the beginnings of the um, discrimination against Jews in, in, um, in and around Germany. Yeah, that anti-Semitism was there, but, like, they weren't just, you know, it wasn't to the point, like, by the time the book ends, they weren't, you know, training, you know, taking off thousands and thousands of people in trains to concentration camps yet. It, it ends right when that kind of starts to kick off. Yeah, the concentration camps were there, but they were still called uh, protective custody. Yeah, people got yeah. taken there under, quote, protective custody, and, you know, and so. Yeah. A, a lot of what's referred to 
in history and in this book is the Jew problem um, relates to the discrimination against them from owning businesses, from having jobs um, that were at all related to anything German. You know, they were kind of, you know, had to stick with their own kind and weren't, were no longer accepted as people in the rest of Germany. Yeah. And that's one of the fascinating things I thought was like, at least from my perspective, I'm not huge on history. I'm not a historian by any stretch of the imagination, but I mean, usually when you read or hear about World War II, it's like, oh, Nazis, and, and from the get-go, it seems like there was a light switch where one day they just, like, switched it on, and they were, you know, killing everybody. Uh, the Germans were killing everybody, but uh, it was interesting. With this book, you got to watch, like, kind of law by law, like, the incremental process of enacting this law, which um, made it so Jews couldn't be doctors anymore, and in enacting this law that made it so Jews couldn't do this anymore, and slowly chipping away at the rights of, of these people. Yeah, in some of the more interesting and <clears throat> I, I say this, you know, hesitantly funny parts. At one point, it was uh, it became illegal when speaking on the phone with somebody, and you say, you know, uh, A is in Apple. Saying D is in uh, David had become illegal and had to be changed to uh, D is in Dora, mm. or in the case of S is in Samuel, um, to say S is in Siegfried, um, because David and Samuel are both Jewish names. So, I mean, yeah, the ridiculousness right. with which, uh, you know, with which this proceeded even into, you know, little aspects of, of everyday life, things we don't even think about was was kind of uh, interesting to see. Yeah. And that's kind of, the, I think, the morbid fascination that that is typical with thinking about the World War Two is that things were so, so terrible eventually that you wonder how it got that way. And and you wonder how anybody could have ever been tolerant of it. And it's because it was such an incremental, slow acclimation to uh, or desensitization over time to like minor things that kind of piled up on each other. A couple other notes of interest for me in the book were because of the the way this information was collected um, through memoirs and diaries and letters, it was really interesting to see first person looks at some of the Nazi leaders and just how uh, in some cases they were painted almost as clowns, you know, as, as just mm -hmm. very, you know, flagrant about, about various things. And it was really interesting to see that and not, you know, watching a grainy black and white video where we're told about somebody, but actually, uh, you know, hearing conversations with Rom, who was the leader of the, the SA, uh, you know, and then you know, reading from there that he was admittedly homosexual and not, I don't know, whenever you watch something like this on the History Channel, it's some guy now talking about, you know, in hindsight about these guys. And this was all first person accounting of, you know, some of the bigger some of the bigger Nazis in in, uh, in Germany. Yeah, a much more candid look. And and my one other note of interest that I had, uh, Hitler's love life that they <laughs> talked about very, very sparingly. But I learned some things there that I didn't know. Um, and I'm sure most of this is public knowledge, and I just didn't know this. But yeah, his uh, his affair with his niece that led to what was believed to be her suicide was uh, was kind of interesting. And one thing that um, I hadn't even thought of until we just started talking uh, right now was I briefly mentioned before that most of like the overt, um, really really brutal stuff that period happened after this book ended. But um, there one point where Hitler orders the murder of. Rom and a bunch of other SA people, and that's kind of who it was his his crucial move to to kind of grab all the power it was the night of the long knives, or it was also called Operation Hummingbird, and I think because, and maybe this is just how I read it or how you know the book affected me, but because everything was so 
very briefly touched on before, like all the violence that came up regularly, but it wasn't anything that was gratuitous or anything like that. So when it came to the point where this, where they're talking about Operation Hummingbird and where all of a sudden, you know, the Gestapo and the SS were just gathering up all these SA people and just shooting them and killing them, it, it was like all of a sudden, bam, you had all this violence that um, it just kind of hit me out of the blue. And I was like, man, this just got real. Yeah, it was definitely a huge swing. And I felt a little jilted that the book ended where it did. But then again, it was the story of Dodd and his family. And at that point, um, that was right at the end of Dodd's tenure in uh, in Germany. Right. So, I mean, it was fair that the book ended there and it has to end somewhere. Again, being not being a, a big fan of nonfiction, I don't think I'll find the books that pick up where this one left off. But uh, I did find that he wrote it in a way that was interesting enough to keep me to keep me interested throughout the whole thing. So uh, kudos to him for his uh, his style. Mm hmm. Um, one more quick note. Um, huge, huge cast, huge cast of characters in this book. You know, with fiction books, you kind of decide how many people you want in it. This is real life. So there are probably well over 100 characters in this book. Obviously, the main focus is, is just a few. Uh, notably, Bill that we mentioned earlier was the lame duck of the family because he comes up in <laughs> passing like Bill also joined them at dinner. But <laughs> yeah. either either he chose not to write letters or a memoir or he was so interesting that he didn't come up in conversation very often at all. <laughs> he was always going for a drive and then that was it. And then like four chapters later, he was at dinner, but <laughs> you know, didn't really say anything or, or make any kind of impact on the Dodd family or Germany or anything else. Yeah. Another kind of odd choice in the book that I don't really know even needed to be in there, but was put in was after Dodd had resigned his position as ambassador in Germany and was back in the United States there they mentioned randomly in uh an incident where Dodd was driving down the road and hit with his car a young probably 4-year-old African-American girl and this it doesn't really I mean obviously it was an incident that was traumatic for many people and everything but it doesn't really go anywhere and it doesn't really contribute to my knowledge of Dodd as a person. I think that I think the reason that they put it in was because uh it probably had a psychological effect that you know compounded his health issues and stuff like that, but I was left thinking why was this necessary for the book? It was a really odd choice and it was just kind of it almost even gratuitous to add it in. I'm I'm going to disagree a little bit with you on that. Because they did tell us, you know, after he left his ambassadorship, you know, kind of gave us the rest of his life, which wasn't very long after that. But um, not only was it a, a big part of his life, but the thing that was really interesting about this, it let them, <laughs> it, it allowed Larson to say that the punishment was a fine. He lost his driving privileges and his right to vote, mm. which was then later reinstated. So that's not something I was aware you could have taken away from you from a... I mean, they all, I was going to say from vehicular manslaughter, but he didn't even kill this kid. And I mean, the, the kid, you know, at least from the book implied that she was going to be OK. But they took away his right to vote because he hit someone with his car. Yeah, I which forgot I, about which that. I found, which right. I found really, really interesting, more so probably than the incident that caused that to happen. So, yeah, I. OK, that makes more sense. Yeah. All in all, like I said, it was it was done in a way, in a way that was interesting enough. I do now check and specifically ask Rob if any of the books that we're reading are fiction or nonfiction. <laughs> I'm typically, uh, I don't want to say I'm a huge fan, but I have enjoyed quite a bit some historical fiction. Um, but for me, a book needs dialogue in order to really keep me going. And um, 
although there are many, many, many quotes, they're kind of, they're never in a conversational fashion. It's always so-and-so, you know, reported later in a letter to, you know, person B that this is what transpired. So there's really not any back and forth, very, very little throughout the book, unless they're, you know, it's a section that's about a letter from Martha to Boris, who's a Russian guy she was involved with for some time, and then kind of his response to her. But all in all, he did a good job of uh, bringing nonfiction to somebody who, you know, is really not a fan. Okay. And I do have a couple of quotes from the book that I think just give an interesting perspective. The first one, I kind of have to set up a little bit. It has to do with Hermann Goring, who was the head of the German Air Force. And this is an odd expedition to his house where he invites a bunch of ambassadors from different countries to this thing. And it in the, in the course of the book, it's really not clear why they're being taken there. He just kind of explains it as it goes, where he, he kind of takes them along through his property and shows them birds, and he talks about birds, and he shows them these other animals, and he talks about other animals, and he shows them uh, this kind of setup that he's got by the lake and his house and stuff, and he's he's kind of talking about it, – it's, it's half like he's showing off, and it's half like he's trying to teach them some sort of um, moral lesson or something deeper about life, but it was so – odd and unexpected that they made it sound like everybody was just kind of wondering why it even happened. So here's the quote. But the episode had provided him a valuable, if unsettling insight into the nature of Nazi rule. And this is a quote from his journals or whatever. The chief impression was that of the most pathetic naivete of General Goring, who showed us his toys like a big, fat, spoiled child. His primeval woods, his bison and birds, his shooting box and lake and bathing beach, his blonde private secretary, his wife's mausoleum and swans and sarsen stones. And then I remembered there were other toys, less innocent though winged, and these might someday be launched on their murderous mission in the same childlike spirit and with the same childlike glee. That was just a really sobering perspective about it was like a portent of things to come. Was that in that whole section that the quote alludes to is just very indicative of what I'd said earlier about drawing this picture of the Nazis. There was a very candid portrait of a guy who's pretty much off his lid there at that point. So <laughs> I also have a quote I wanted to share, which is uh, earlier in the book, but I think really stresses the fact and drove home how certain people felt about what was going on in Berlin. And this is a, a fairly unimportant side character recalled her great sorrow at having to leave Berlin. Nowhere have I had such lovely friends as in Germany, she wrote. Looking back on it all is like seeing someone you love go mad and do horrible things. And that was just kind of how she felt about what had happened in Berlin um, after Hitler took over as chancellor. Yeah, that's a powerful... Um, I, I remember being moved by that, uh, that quote, and it's definitely a powerful, and again, really powerful perspective on things that were going on all right i've got one other quote it's kind of another long one but uh this is this is from a speech that was given by franz von papen who uh was the vice chancellor under adolf hitler at the time he gave this speech the background on the speech he had two uh people who wrote the speech for him but they didn't show it to him until right before the speech was delivered because the things that they wrote were so inflammatory that they felt that he wouldn't have done it had he had time to prepare and true to form he didn't want to but he knew he was in a position where he couldn't not give the speech because it had already also been distributed to news sources and stuff like that 
So this is an excerpt from that speech. The German people, he said, would follow Hitler with absolute loyalty, quote, provided they are allowed to have a share in the making and carrying out of decisions, provided every word of criticism is not immediately interpreted as malicious, and provided that despairing patriots are not branded as traitors. The time had come, he proclaimed, quote, to silence doctrinaire fanatics. So this is, this is a speech that was delivered while Hitler was on the rise. At the time where paranoia was growing and people were becoming less and less uh, sure of who was on their side or against them or anything like that. So it was very inflammatory thing to, to say. And he feared that he would be killed because of it. Rightfully. So. All right. Certainly that speech was the beginning of the end for, for non Nazi Germans um, in power there too. That led to the night of long knives. Um, certainly shortly after that, I think it was a matter of weeks um, until Hitler seized all power in Germany. Yeah. All right. You ready to wrap this one up? Yeah. All right. Why don't you go ahead and give it what you got? Okay. Overall, I'm much more receptive to the idea of reading nonfiction than my counterpart here. And so it wasn't really that difficult for me to get through. And actually having read, having fully read The Devil in the White City, uh, this has a much better pace and is much more fascinating than the previous book, Devil in the White City. And so I found it to be refreshingly easy to get through. The perspective and the topics and everything were really, really interesting, and and the way they presented was really easy for me to take in. I, the typical analysis of characters and stuff is real relevant because this is nonfiction. I see overall, I thought it was a good read, and it was very informative, and it was a very interesting and different perspective than what I've heard before. I gave it a three uh, because overall. I thought it was a good read and I don't think nonfiction can ever really blow anybody away. Cause it's just, it is what it is. So, uh, overall good book. I agree with Rob. This was very easy to get through again, large part due to the writing style. Um, that, like I said, if you didn't, if you can get past the fact that these were all, you know, all the quotes and everything were drawn from that basically that there was no dialogue and everything was drawn from a letter of correspondence. Um, it had a very fictiony feel to it. He covered a lot of uh, a lot of ground. I mean, it was, like I said, something like 350 pages, you know, covering four years. So he didn't spend very much time on any given uh, on any given year. Some of the characters were very interesting. Again, like Rob said, we don't really need much character study. These were real people, but seen through the eyes of others. I learned a lot, and I think part of it has to do with it's not some of this. It's not always the stuff that's covered on the History Channel. Not that I watch much of that. And from time to time, this may be something we'll talk about in an interlude episode. You don't always know what's fair to rate a book based on what the book is. So I'm going to actually go a little higher than Rob. And I'm going to go three and a half stars. And here's my thought process behind this. Nonfiction books to me are, are, are a one star book. That's where they start. And then they have to do something really good to get out of the one star category. So instead of it starting, you know, I don't know, for some people, maybe they, you know, depending on what your expectation is. My favorite author writes a book. I expect it to be a five-star book, and then you know you kind of start to chip away at the five stars coming backwards. With this book, when I read the introduction to it and said, "Oh my God, this is nonfiction," it was automatically a one-star book. So yeah, I'm going to go three and a half stars again for the reasons I stated. I think that uh, that he did a very good job bringing a, a historical story and making it interesting enough for me, somebody who doesn't really care for that type of thing, to you know, to, to find it interesting enough and, and, and easy to read. And Hey, that's really a ringing endorsement that basically Livius is saying without saying, if you don't like nonfiction, 
you still probably will enjoy this book. Yes, that's that's actually what I'm saying. And I have no I, I mean, I have no interest in Nazis or America in the 1940s. So I found it interesting enough to 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 care about what was going on and to actually learn something about it. Great. And I think uh, this is the first time and uh, this is our eighth episode now. And I don't have anything to word snob about. Yeah, I mean, his writing style was very clean. It was um, it's kind of odd because I was thinking about the fact that, you know, typically every episode we have some quotes from the book. And I thought none of the quotes are actually going to be from the author. And they weren't. Um, his writing is is I don't know how to explain this. It's written smoothly enough that it just it's, kind of blends into the background. It's like efficient. You don't really it. Exactly. Yeah. Uh, so, yeah. So fortunately, we just quoted, um, you know, three different people. Yeah. <laughs> uh, <you know. laughs> One a minor character in a book, but yeah, we didn't actually quote the author on anything. I actually have a couple of suggestions for other books that if you liked this or like the general idea of uh, this book, you might be interested in reading these books as well. The first one is my nonfiction suggestion, and now I'm just kind of doing this on purpose. There's a a book by (laughs) Kurt Vonnegut. (laughs) There's a book by Kurt Vonnegut called Mother Night. Mother Night is a story of an American named Howard Campbell who, uh, during World War II, was basically uh, a radio personality who uh, was a propaganda person for the Nazis. Uh, but the story is that he was actually working for America and his radio broadcasts were secretly giving information to America about the Nazis. It's a really, really well-written book. And it touches on a lot of the intrigue, uh, paranoia, and just the basic propaganda, which was a huge part of, uh, from my understanding, a huge part of World War II. It's Vonnegut, so if you're a Vonnegut fan, you'll like it. And it's just, you know, it deals with that whole human condition and people dealing with the things that are going on in their lives. (laughs) The other book I want to suggest is called Overthrow. It's by Stephen Kinzer. It's Overthrow, America's Century of Regime Change from Hawaii to Iraq. Essentially, this book is a historical analysis of the way that the United States caused regime change in different countries throughout history from the 1890s until the present day. It goes through dozens of different countries, including our dealings with Afghanistan when Afghanistan was at war with the Soviet Union and the manipulations that took place there, a lot of stuff that went on in the Middle East. Essentially, it's um, American imperialism, and again, it's one of those things where this is a historical book, but it's through a very specific perspective where um, it's criticizing the imperialistic nature of the United States. But it's a very fascinating read uh, because it's kind of a brief snapshot of what was going on, and it focuses very specifically on American intervention and imperialism and stuff. I found it very, very fascinating, and I liked it a lot. So that's a good nonfiction American foreign policy book that came out recently that I thought was really good. Okay. Originally I didn't have um, any suggestions for our read this, not that, but I thought about it. And while I was listening to to Rob's suggestion, that last (laughs) one, especially I thought, okay, for all of you fiction fans out there who may have snoozed off at some point while we were talking about this, uh, this decidedly nonfiction book, here's one you could read. If you're interested at all in Nazi Germany, Robert McCammon's 1989 release, Wolf Sour. It's about a uh, a werewolf that's hired by the <laughs> Allies to fight the Nazis. <laughs> nice. Some of you, some of you may know McCammon from more recently. He's been a bestseller with uh, Speaks the Nightbird. 
which is a colonial detective books. I believe I mentioned them in one of the uh, one of the previous podcasts. Matthew Corbett is the uh, is cast as the first ever detective in the United States. But yeah, go back uh, twenty plus years and get a copy of um, Wolf's Hour. Robert McCammon. It's werewolves and Nazis, and uh, <laughs> a little you can't pass that up. Exactly. So. <laughs> So if you're still awake um, at this point in the podcast, um, but don't want to read any nonfiction, that's the other direction you can go. If you've already read all the Vonnegut books, because Rob has plugged them on every single episode. I have it on good authority that at least one, possibly two of our listeners are big history buffs. So two people are awake. Well, there you go. Hey, uh, do you have any shout outs? I do. And this um, came about because during our interlude episode, um, two episodes ago, I kind of <laughs> All right. You know, you have these books that you hold dear and you kind of just assume that people know what you're talking about. And, you know, I, I refer to one of my favorite books frequently to people as KMJ, which is um, short for Kiss Me, Judas, a uh, Will Christopher Bayer novel. And I realized it. Somebody had commented to me that I mentioned a book called Apathy and just sped right past what any of the rest of it is. So I'm going to give you a little more detail on that. Apathy and Other Small Victories. Um, it was a 2007 release by Paul um, Nealon. Nylon, N-I-E-L-A-N? I think Nealon. Um, Nealon. One of the, if not the funniest book I've ever read. Laugh out loud all the way through. Uh, it's a story about a guy named Shane who's kind of a little bit of a slacker, to put it mildly. Uh, who has an addiction to stealing salt shakers. Um, there's just a cast of crazy characters. All of it is very tongue in cheek, but very funny. He's dating a woman that's sexually abusive um, towards him frequently. He befriends a uh, deaf woman who enjoys singing Rick Springfield songs at karaoke bars um, during deaf karaoke. It's just, it's a laugh out loud, funny book. And if by chance any of you have some type of avenue to contact or know Paul Nealon, um, beg him. It's been four years to put out another book because I'm very much looking forward to anything else he does. Agreed. So that's my shout out for this week. And hey, before we actually tell everybody what the next book we're reading is, I just wanted to mention because I thought this was important, especially with uh, some of the talks that we've had in the past about cheap ebooks and how that affects book publishing in general, is that um, I think it. Uh, I might be wrong, but I think you mentioned to me the fact that for the first time, ebooks are actually outselling print books. Yeah, that um, made news earlier this week. Um, I guess since April of this year, so for the last six or seven weeks, Amazon, and these are all specifically Amazon numbers when we talk about ebooks, at least for this particular conversation, but for every hundred print books Amazon.com um, has sold, it sold 105 Kindle books. Which is kind of interesting. That includes the sales of hardcover and paperback books, even where there isn't a Kindle edition available. Yeah. So what is, you know, what, what goes into that? I mean, obviously I have some thoughts and not a lot of official stuff, but um, there are a slew of books that are only available as Kindle books. And there are a whole slew of 99 cent books like we've mentioned before. But <laughs> Does um, that include could, free books? I can't remember. No, it's it, those are excluded. Okay. And if they did, obviously, that number would be even higher. But, yeah, I mean, then you get the hoarders where, you know, I've got, you know, all 7,000 free books and then that doesn't, you know, but that is excluded from that count. Interestingly enough, too, in the U.K., not only are hardcover sales up this year, but Kindle books are outselling paper books in on Amazon U.K. at a rate of two to one. That's insane staggering but again <laughs> some of that has to do with the fact that you know they could be obviously they're cheaper 
a huge amount of Kindles have have sold, um, as well as other readers. This past holiday season, um, that was one of the number one gift items. Mm-hmm. So as more people got those, and as more people are getting into buying books, we're going to see that number only go up from there. And I can't imagine it's that long. It'll be that long before we see two to one in the United States. I took some looking through while we were looking for a book to or other books to read. For the podcast, I was looking at, you know, some small indie press, self-published authors, and there are just tons and tons and tons of books available that are Kindle exclusive that aren't even available in paper at all. You know, something I thought about that I've been kind of thinking about lately, too, and I hate to give credit to Barnes & Noble, but the way that they made their own reader and really launched into the e-reader and e-book arena is astoundingly impressive uh their answer to the kindle was very successful and i think that had they not done that maybe borders would be on solid more solid ground right now and also just the ebook sphere or world or whatever might be different than it is now barnes and noble's enthusiastic embracing of e-readers i think was a very big move in 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 the whole grand scheme of things yeah, it's it's become. I mean, there are so many platforms to read on now. I mean, I just picked up my first Kindle, um, partially because of this, um, partially because of this very podcast. But yeah, I mean, the ability to switch back and forth from my phone um, to my computer and to the Kindle is is pretty amazing, and it'll keep your place as long as you purchase your books legally through Amazon.com, which everybody uh, should. Exactly. You know, it's 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 really fantastic, and you know. And you can carry 300 books in your back pocket, basically, and maybe that's a little unrealistic. But you know what? I'm pretty sure that thing would fit in the side pocket on my cargo shorts where I plan on spending, <laughs> uh, where it's going to be spending quite a bit of time this summer. So, again, interestingly enough, yeah, uh, the other stat that I was able to look up here while we've been talking, Amazon has sold three times, uh, more than three times as many Kindle books so far in in 2011 as it did during the same period in 2010. So year to date, um, they're up 300 percent in Kindle book sales. That's staggering. Yeah. So, so there you go. Lots of stuff to to read um, out there for everybody, and uh, lots of really inexpensive stuff to read, which is very very cool. That you don't necessarily have to spend you know twelve or fourteen or fifteen bucks. And again, as we mentioned before, you may find a that hidden gem that uh, isn't something that's on the bestseller list, but it's that one you can recommend to all your friends. And that ties in perfectly, actually, with the book that we'll be reading next week, which is Stranger Will by Caleb J. Ross. I pulled the synopsis. I'll read it for you really quickly. To William Lawson, impending fatherhood means an impending stain. His work as a human's remain removal specialist, professionally cleaning the stains left from dead bodies, fuels this belief. His friend and mentor, Mrs. Rose, an elementary school principal, nurtures and sympathizes with his cynicism, blaming his dilemma on an imperfect world. But she has a plan around this impediment. A group of strangers, a devout collection of kindred minds who have dedicated their lives to cultivating a unique idea of perfection. And she wants William to join. But once he's in, can he get out? So that's the next book we're reading, Stranger Will by Caleb Ross. Look for more of that next week. Hey, hey, Rob. Um, is, that a, is that a fiction book? It is. It's a fiction book. Okay. Just wanted to check. All right. I'm totally going to read Stranger <laughs> Will by Caleb J. Ross. Just wanted to make sure we didn't run into another snag. Um, it's a, it is a fiction book. It's not um, 550 pages of talking about turning pages either. You don't know that yet. Uh, yeah, I guess I am speculating. 
but that's uh, that's what we've got for uh, for next week. Stranger Will by Caleb J. Ross. Uh, I'm looking forward to reading this. It's actually been on my uh, on my list of books to read for a little bit now. Yeah, we've been flirting with this one for a while, and it and it and it made it to our on the to the top of the roster. We're always looking for new stuff to read. Um, so if you are an author that has something coming out shortly or recently released, um, you can hit us up at bookpodcast.com. Um, you could hit us up on Twitter at booked podcast. Um, if you just can't get enough of this podcast, not only is it available on iTunes, but it's also now available on podcast.com. <laughs> and I laugh because I can't figure it out to save my <laughs> life. So if you can figure out how to find us on podcast.com, drop us an email at uh, bookpodcast at gmail.com and let me know how <laughs> I can find our podcast on there. Sounds good. Uh, I think that'll do it for booked this week. I'm Rob Olson. And I'm Livia Snudden. Keep reading. 